You're listening to the Spirit Hunters on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Find out about our pod brethren and how to join our new Discord group and support the show at greenlitpodcast.com and patreon.com slash spirithunterpod respectively. Season 3, Episode 5 of the Spirit Hunters. This is Hannah, Joe, and Sarah. So last time, Gon, Kiloa, and Kite battled and defeated more Khmer ants like Yunju Exotic and Borrow the Armadillo. Unknown to our heroes, the Khmer ants discover Nen, which does not bode well for anyone. This week, more fun facts about the animal kingdom Nen, and how everything can get worse than it already is. You better get ready, because we're not. <laughs> anyway, so we're going to start off with episode 84 of Faded Awakening in Japanese, Sadame no Mezame. It was originally released in Japan on June 16th, 2013. The equivalent manga chapters are 197 and 198, which were released in Japan on October 6, 2003. Alrighty, so the episode starts just after um, Kite basically defeated all of Hagia's subordinates with his crazy slot slice, and he and Ganakilawa are continuing to look for the Khmer Ant Queen's nest. Unknown to them, uh, but known to us, the audience, thanks to the great old narrator, um, one of the royal guards is about to hatch or awaken. Whichever one. Uh, and It just occurred to me, I think, uh, oh, sorry. I was going to say, I think Mezame oh, is no, like ahead. the same awakening that's used in uh, Jojo when the Pillar Men awaken. Although it, it probably honestly just means to awaken and I'm unaware, but I'm just remembering the phrase that uh, Wham says to the rest of the pillar men to wake them up. Oh, like, yeah. Like he, yeah, like when he says, awaken my masters, he says like, Mezame no, and then like goes from there. Oh, yeah. Okay, so on their way to the nest, um, Kite warns Gon and Kilowa that they're being followed by somebody in the skies. It turns out to be Flutter, one of Hagia's officers, uh, <laughs> he is a dragonfly and like Ant, and he commands other dragonfly like ants to distract the three humans um, while attacking them from a distance. Uh, Gonkilua and Kite, they start to run when the flying ants appear. Um, Gonkilua try to attack, but because of the forest trees, they can't get a hit in. I really think like Flutter is like the LaVar burden of uh, Hunter Hunter, if you really think about it, because like, this, is, this is a sort of a reading rainbow, because it's like flutterfly in the sky, gonna try to make you die. Take a look, I'm gonna kill. Anyways, all humans. <laughs> no, from a distance, can't kill anyone. <laughs> Keep your distance. Don't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, 
Kite realizes that they're actually being lured into a trap, and he's right. So from a distance away in a field, um, there's Hagia and Hina. They're hiding in the tall grass, uh, waiting to attack. Um, Hina thinks that uh, just ambushing their prey isn't cool, um, but Hagia insists this is how the king of the jungle hunts, um, <laughs> which I find funny because... Hina's a very human-look chameleon. Yeah, this is my observation. Most of the female chameleons, with the exception to the queen, they look a certain way. I wonder why. We'll unpack that later. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously. But, yeah, she. I thought she was fully human. I was like, most of them, they kind of have, you know, like a mix of, like, anthro anthro features, whatever you call it. But hers was like, I cannot distinguish anything that makes her a bug <laughs> so or like an animal i don't know is is there something with your character design joe that you know uh, th- so there is something i won't say that it makes her like a bug but it does make her seem more alien but it involves her power later oh yeah yeah so that's true i think yeah Hina is always like i she's like you know you in most animes you need like a cute character she kind of mm-hmm. fills that like niche honestly so uh, maybe that's that why sense. she looks pretty human yeah Is that a blobfish i think so yeah i was thinking like maybe it's supposed to be some sort of ears but they don't look like ears to me <laughs> no <laughs> yeah um so we head back to the ant's nest um where peggy and remat are asking the pig ant who's a butcher, which I found ironic, um, <laughs> if he has seen the, the rare human that Zazan brought in earlier. Um, no one's sure um, if the queen had eaten the human already or he's hiding around somewhere. And it turns out the human, who is Pokal, he's still alive um, thanks to a handy-dandy antidote that he hid in his molar. Uh, he is just very confused and very traumatized as he's like hiding underneath a pile of human bones. Oh my gosh. I like, I mean, it's really smart that he had some kind of antidote and everything, but I don't know. If I was him, I just want to be dead at that point. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> You're surrounded by human bones. I would take the L. <laughs> Yeah, I found this interesting that because the queen, we had seen her eat basically like humans whole, like why would she, they need like a butcher mm. in the first place? Uh, She ate them whole before, but I think now they talk about her liking to eat meatballs, which are made from just like, basically they inject the humans with some sort of toxin that like puts them, makes them paralyzed and they rip the flesh off them while they're alive and roll it into meatballs, like in front of the living human. Oh, wow. I wonder if that's manga only and they don't talk about it in the anime. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) I I was like, I need to paralyze them and it makes sense now why the bones are there, but it just seems so... That's very human-like of her to prefer her food that way (laughs) instead of just, you know, cleanly eating it. Yeah, like people eating living octopus, stuff like that. Yeah, the next thing she's going to be like, can you make this into carpaccio, human carpaccio, please? (laughs) (laughs) 
It's like, where is the creme, the creme anglaise? That's actually not, that's a dessert thing. Uh, where's the gravy with this? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, God. I'm just imagining yeah. a, uh, I'm imagining a cooking show led by a chimera ant. <laughs> oh, man. Mary Scary is the judge. <laughs> Barefoot Antessa. <laughs> wow. I was going to say just like a Chimera and Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> You're an idiot sandwich. <laughs> not fit for the queen, not enough nutrition. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> so as Peggy continues to question the butcher, um, who actually doesn't notice that Ramit now has like a Nen glow up, uh, which means uh, not all the ants are aware of Nen or the so-called aura out that the, at least the ants are referring it to as. And mm-hmm. Ramit is thinking like, I got this new power. I can become the king. I just had to master it. He's having all these very grand ideas of glory that immediately get stopped um, when the room is overtaken by a powerful dark aura and it's coming from the awakening of one of the queen's royal guards so i will yeah. develop this theory throughout the series but when i made mm-hmm. the comparison to the uh pillar men i honestly think that's not an idle comparison like i mean obviously there being three isn't like unique in any way but i do think that there are some characters and in their interactions with some of the characters who show up later in this arc are very Pillar Men-esque. Oh, yeah. I agree. Yeah, I can see that. And you said, like, yourself, um, like, Tagashi was influenced or, like, really likes JoJo, right? So it's exactly like, especially, like, the arc with the Pillar Men, that was, like, in the what? It was written in the like 90s? 88. 88 no, so it's like from 88 yeah yeah plenty of time to kind of get those like influences and whatnot so i can totally see that i feel like also three is very symbolic in a lots mm-hmm. in typical literature and mythologies so it's interesting like i'm trying to think what else from a very like classic christian i always think of like the <laughs> three wise men Except these are the three royal guards of death. There's a manga cover that is like basically a nativity scene. Let me find it. Oh, oh really? That's cool. Yes. <laughs> Except uh, bringing like myrrh, they're bringing in brains and like. <laughs> oh boy. I'm gonna I'm gonna find out which volume it is. You guys continue in the meantime. Yeah. Yeah, so um, we're back to um, Hagia and Hina. Um, so as they're waiting, um, they witness the power of Kite and his crazy slot scythe. It's actually a really cool visual because all of a sudden we have an aerial view and there's just like a sudden circle in the trees. And that's basically Kite's scythe basically cutting down anything within that circle trees and the flying ants um so only flutter manages to survive and i think he still only survives with like half his body (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) so like he's definitely missing his lower half um 
the Lycite mentioned, as long as their headache is intact, they can still survive. Um, and seeing this display, Hagia realizes that no matter how powerful he is um, or his team is, they still can't win against Kite and the boys. Um, but the ants now have the ability to learn and they'll be strong enough one day to win. Uh, and I found this interesting because a lot of it was going into like the I guess like the dynamics of animal kingdom and like might is power um and so the stronger you are and that kind of puts like the hierarchy instinctively like I can't test them now but maybe later um I I found it interesting too and it's also I think reflective of like their human nature as well because Mm -hmm. um acknowledging the ability to learn it in a way to say like once I learn I can gain power is a very like human thing as well so yeah for sure yep and so Hagia decides to take the strategic L and retreat um Gon Kite and Kilua decide to follow them knowing that they'll head back to the nest any thoughts Joe or um yeah, I mean, as mentioned, uh, the idea of, like, the human strength being, like, the ability to learn and that being, like, what kind of, like, changes the chimera ants because it's not just the idea of individuality because I think individuality is a big part of this, but I think the ability to learn is something very important that is both something that changes these ants from their original nature but also contrasts them with humans. Um, this will be a theme mm-hmm. throughout the uh, throughout the saga for sure because, like, the idea of cognition and learning becomes like a theme in a very direct way later yeah. in this saga. <laughs> yeah. So I'm excited to see that kind of develop. Yeah, for sure. Um, and we are we're taken back to the ant's nest. And so just feeling the power that's coming from the Royal Guard's aura. Uh, Ramit is basically frozen with fear and he realizes that he's just completely weak in comparison. Um, Any dreams he has of becoming the king is pointless and that he should use his new power um, to serve the real king instead. So, it's, yeah, from being like Ramot the rebellious little punk to like Ramot the royal guard simp <laughs> is like a he did a 180. <laughs> I don't know if he's a simp. I can't maybe uh, but I I definitely agree that he just he realizes he's nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's like basically being confronted it's like being confronted with just like a nuclear bomb and just realizing that in comparison to that, you're just like a tiny speck. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, just to underline the point, the Royal Guard is a natural. Like a natural Nen user. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's crazy. Just born with it. Um, and yeah. so the Royal Guard whose name I will reveal at the end of the episode, points out that Vokal is actually alive and he's hiding. So Ramit captures him. And after doing some light reading on the human brain, um, the guard comes up with an idea on how to extract information on Nen from Vokal. 
which basically entails playing Operation on Pokal's brain while he's still alive <laughs> um, using uh-huh. a pair of like Camara and Antenny. Um, and so by manipulating, I think it was like the hippocampus or something, uh, he they're able to force Pokal to tell them everything he knows about Nen. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, it's free brain surgery. <laughs> oh, yeah. Patrick inserted a reference to an Aqua Teen episode called The Brood Witch. Have you guys ever seen this? No. I don't think so. <laughs> An episode about a, a sandwich from hell. But, like, at the end uh-huh. of it, like, one of them gets tricked into, like, getting bur- brain surgery, gets a lobotomy, and then, like, is killed by Satan. But, like, he's like, oh, you win free brain surgery. He's like... Uh, wait, what's the line? He's like, now that's what I'm talking about, baby. Hey, wait a minute. And then you just see them cut in the back of his skull. <laughs> oh, my oh, God. no. That's basically what happened to Fogel. <laughs> Except he wasn't excited about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. Poor, poor Fogel. It's kind of foreshadowing for later, but I wonder if this scene heavily inspired what this what this uh, like royal guard would eventually choose to to do with their nen. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I I think I can see that. So, um, Siri will find out. <laughs> later Ooh. Ooh. I'll anticipate. Um. I think what I found interesting, I guess there's a lot of interesting cuts in this episode. So one of the interesting things I found was as um, they're learning about Nen, like just like the house, there's different types. There's like B-roll of Gon, Kilo, and Kite running towards the ant's nest in like ominous red lighting. And I thought that was interesting that they decided to show that and then transition into like the exact like brain surgery that the ant is doing to Polkel. I thought that was an interesting way to like show like the urgency of the situation, like as, and also the dramatic irony, like the fact, like as they're trying to race to stop the ants from becoming stronger, it's almost like too late because the ants are already mm-hmm. learning. So I thought that yeah. was really cool. Yeah, I think the vis- like the visuals of the season really, really like help exemplify all the themes and just like, you know, all the urgency, like, I don't know, like of the season. Like I thought um, the last season, York New did a really good job visually, you know, like with the dark moody scenes and everything, certain shots. But I think Khmer Ant does like that times 10. So it is really cool and it, it gets even better, which is really cool about this arc. So yeah. It's interesting how it's yeah. done in both the mm-hmm. manga and anime, because like in the manga, we'll, we'll talk more about it later, but the way it's presented is pretty different. Ooh, interesting. interesting. Yeah. Not like and- there's nothing in this scene except text kind of different right <laughs> not, not like that it's not like that they just like go less out of their way to underline the forebodingness and like i think they do it so the way that this builds it up is more like building up tension and then having like a release mm-hmm. well what happens mm-hmm. in the manga is more like there's an incredibly sudden thing you don't see coming that just like explodes off the page basically Ooh, that's interesting i mean i feel like very much this arc is 
almost like their horror, <laughs> the horror movie arc. Um, so it's interesting to see like a more slow, almost psychological take of horror. And I guess from the manga, it's almost like an abrupt, um, like existential sense of horror because it's like a surprise, surprise. This is happening and we don't understand, <laughs> and it's terrible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a different approach. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Um, and so the. Once the Royal Guard learns about Nen from Pokal, um, they figure out that Remit probably got his um, after fighting um, Gon. So basically, Gon's like Nen-powered punch. Um, they opened the aura nodes, um, kind of similar to what Colt had theorized. Um, so when Colt had Remit basically punch him, um, it then activated holt's nen powers so we can see that like elsewhere somewhere in the nest that he's suddenly like glowing um with the with nen and they also decide to test what types they are so they do the water deviation and Ahmed he goes first and since the cup overflows he turns out to be an enhancer which personality wise it makes sense <laughs> yeah checks out yep and the Royal Guard is like, I want to try it myself. And they turn out to be specialists. So we can see that the, the leaf breaks apart. So real quick, what happened when Kurapika did the water divination? Because I don't remember the leaf breaking apart even when they were revealed to be a specialist. Like, the reason I ask is because there's one other person much later in the series after the anime who has this same effect happen when they turn out to be a specialist. And, like, that person oh. is, like, the big bad of, like, the current arc. And so I'm wondering if this was, like, either just, like, a late addition or it's to emphasize this person's, like, a world-ending threat the way this is. I could definitely see the latter. I don't remember what um, happened with Karapika's water divination, divination, like, what it looked like. So you may yeah. need to revisit that, find a screen cap or something just to see and compare yeah, I think I'll do that. And and just just for the record, the person in the current arc has a power completely unlike uh this completely unlike this uh royal guard. Interesting. Mm. Yeah, so um Peggy is shocked that the royal guard is able to ha use Nen or has it uh, despite cuz they're literally born probably just a few minutes ago and they have never had the chance to write a rare human, um, which makes me wonder, did they come from like a human with Nen or are they just that powerful? So it's it's also implied that some of them have uh, magical beasts uh, like DNA incorporated and magical beasts have Nen. Mm. Oh, that makes yeah, sense. Like they later discuss one of the royal guards having no human DNA whatsoever, but having massive Nen abilities. Oh, interesting. I don't remember that, so... It might be manga only. We'll find out. Okay. And the episode ends with the Royal Guard finally revealing its name, which was given by the queen herself. It is Neverpitu. It's more like Neverbofu? What? <laughs> Neverbofu. Is that Patrick's name? No, no. <laughs> Neverbofu. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> it's, it's probably Patrick added it. Okay. Never I think what he's going for is more like 
No, I think he's going like never bofa, never bofa these nuts. Uh, okay, okay. Well. <laughs> I think I think that's what yeah. he's going for. Honestly, I've thought about looking into the origin of this, but like nothing occurs to me off the top of my head. I wonder if there's like a meaningful thing with this, or if it's just like the queen being like so alien from humans is just like I don't know. I'll just make some fucking name up. I mean, she's the only one she gave a name otherwise to is Colt, right? Or has she been giving everyone names? I don't remember. Uh, I think she started giving people names because Colt specifically asked for one. Oh, okay. Because Colt was like, hey, uh, yeah, I want to be differentiated from others because it's easier to identify us. And I think I mentioned mm-hmm. previously that I thought it was interesting that the beginnings of like differentiation occurred in reference to a king because this was inspired by him interacting with some of the soldiers of gyro who mentioned that gyro is the name of like you know their king yeah Mm. okay so the idea of individuality descending from kingship and like what that means philosophically yeah because i remember in that episode when they he brought it up like they would all like to use names then the queen like walked off and said like well i will shall name these three myself so i don't know if she went off to name any other ants afterwards but definitely for sure she was like i'm gonna name the the royal guards um every time i hear like nefertiti i think of nefertiti so i don't know if it's like a play on just a royalty and wanting something really to elude that Ooh. or it just sounded cool i just found a theory online that's interesting Ooh, what is it uh apparently uh nefertiti and her husband were known for a religious revolution in ancient egypt where they worshiped one god only aten the sun god and <gasps> oh. so i wonder if this is in reference to their feelings for the king and other aspects we will not get into yet Ooh, oh my gosh i that's really cool that's I, I'm, like, already pulling. I can see that. That's really cool. Uh, and yeah. that fan theory was on uh, hunterhunterwiki.com as a comment. Nice. So I'm going to look into Nefertiti for a possible research piece in the future. Okay. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. She was the wife of Akhenaten, who was, like, a monotheist in ancient Egypt. That's, that's cool. Yeah, and that's the episode. Yeah, there were some deaths to rate, but... I think at most those the biggest us were just those like random dragonfly ants, and it was off screen. So I give it a we'll get a into one. it. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say we'll get into it after the manga notes because, like, I mean, okay, uh, did 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 Pokel not die in this part? Oh, Pack? he did die. I mean, he he's yeah, he's basically dead. If he, did, I'm pretty <laughs> sure he died. Died in, in the manga. He's dead. 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 <laughs> oh okay that's four deads <laughs> yeah so real quick uh here in the manga uh so the scenes where flutter discusses plans and where the dragonflies attack and where leo and the jellyfish girl hina talk about hunting are not in the manga at all those are filler actually mm, okay um, so in the manga they you they have serial numbers for all the prey so it's easier for them to like remember when all the prey like were and like it's a lot more organized while in the anime it just seems completely disorganized yeah it seems like in the anime it's like oh just gather some bodies or some humans this one and that one and that's it i think they in the anime they did give them numbers he was like four thousand something something 
Mm-hmm. I remember because I was watching it in the English dub, and then at least in the English dub, they referred to him as a number. Interesting question. Where are you watching? Because we found out last time while recording that Netflix has removed the good subtitles from Hunter Hunter. Oh, I've been watching on Netflix, so. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I'm thinking about switching to Crunchyroll just because, like, yeah, they got rid of the ability to watch the subs of the Japanese language version. Really? Oh, really? Even oh when watching in even when watching in Japanese. Oh, what the God. heck? Yeah, yeah, they really fucked up. We found out in the middle of last episode. Ooh. Because we all went in just to check because, like, we were all like, "Wait, didn't something seem off?" And then we checked and we're like, "Oh God, they did the worst." Uh, that's sad. Cause, like, I want to watch the. I mean, I guess I'm just gonna rewatching. It's easier because I already know the context of everything, but I can enjoy it with the English dub, which I really like. But that fuck Netflix shaking my head. Yeah, this after <laughs> the the bullshit they pulled with Squid Game, like which again, not the translator's fault so much as the logistics of it, and it just sounds like Netflix is right. opposed to doing good subtitles. Yeah, it seems like they really don't care about quality subtitles at all. Yeah, yeah. well, we'll see what comes from that. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, going forward, in this version, uh, Nefer Pitu, who is like literally just born in the shot, like basically falls from an egg on the ceiling. Like, here's Ramit's plans like of becoming king, and like hears them in her mind. She's basically just reading the like thoughts on the top of like Ramit's head. He basically just, just is an implied power of Nefer Pitu in the manga and uh neferpitu does not hear these thoughts in the anime and ramit just keeps the plans to himself uh side note uh neferpito is uh looking kind of jacked up in these panels oh so patrick says jacked up i disagree actually basically the aesthetic that neferpito has in the manga is very different than the anime they changed her look later or his look oh we'll have to get into this discussion but like basically most material that refers to a gender does say like does say masculine but like it is ambiguous at points, but like most stuff with references to gender, even in the Japanese version, is masculine. Oh, okay. Oh, really? I think with, um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about that. You'll see, especially if you watch the, if you just watch with the Japan, like the Japanese audio with subs, you see, you often will hear, like, see the male pronouns and stuff, or they pronouns. So, um, I don't think I know there's a lot of like um valid opinions about like the rushed art with this arc and stuff, but I think um Never PT's look is pretty cool in this. Um gives me it gives me Claymore vibes. I don't know if you mm. guys read Claymore manga, but the eyes Yeah. So. I've not read it. It's just the eyes. It's it's just different from like Tagashi's typical style, so yeah, so in the manga, at least for this part of it, so this is kept, so Patrick posted the one from like the early version, which usually people are like, oh, they scrapped this art later, and he redrew over it. They kept this panel in the version I have, which is the final version, because mm -hmm. like, because Pito was supposed to basically look ghostly originally, rather than the cat girl that they look like in the anime. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so they're like, they're cat-like, but they're mostly just like a ghost and, and like an alien ghost. That's cool. I like that. <laughs> Uh, if only they kept it. Yeah, but you need a cat girl in anime, I guess. So <laughs> they, uh. they had to make sacrifices. 
for the masses. <laughs> yeah, and so Patrick has a note here that says Neferpito uh, smells Pokal underneath the bo- bodies versus detecting them in the anime. Um, in the version I read, it sounded more like detection, but it was like ambiguous. They didn't like just say like I used N. So like you know, I don't think this is a major concern either way. But it is interesting that the version Patrick read did specifically say smell. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this version, Lael has like a cool panel dedicated to him explaining his uh, claw claws and teeth and like you know hunting prey. But it's done at a very different time and in a different context than in the anime. Oh, and Patrick mentions this very clearly. Uh, Neferpito's interrogation scene seems a lot shorter in the manga since there is none of the stuttering or drawn out, like drawn out speech. Like he's basically, Pokal is just speaking directly because like the idea in the manga is like, no, Pito's really good at this and like has perfectly stimulated his brain to get him to talk. Oh boy. Um, yeah. And so it's a lot more graphic too. You just see the top of his head cracked open like a soft boiled egg. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh God, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think in the in looking at it, this and comparing to the anime, because the anime it had everything as like a dark silhouette and from like a very far angle, so you couldn't clearly see what's going on. While this one is pretty much you see everything. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I'm looking at the version Patrick posted, which has like literal transliterations of the Japanese sound effects. And, like, while uh, Pito is, like, twisting the needles into his brain, it says, fuchi, fuchi, fuchi. And I'm just, like, wondering, like, oh, I wonder in the version I had whether they change it to, like, twinge, twinge, twinge or something like that. Probably. Yeah, because, I mean, same, it gives me all the same vibes of, ugh. But speaking of sound effects, the first time Pito actually looks like a cat girl is in the next frame where Pito basically just tells the butcher dude to just kill to kill Pokal and you just see him getting chopped up and this is what I meant by he's dead 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 in the manga like you literally see him getting dismembered Ooh, that's pretty bad Oof. yeah also the sound effect of the knife is, or the cleaver is putcha <laughs> which is it's almost comedic putcha. it's actually it's a little funny which makes is even more fucked up this looks like, yeah. like yeah. a gag panel <laughs> it does oh boy fun times um but yeah that's pretty much it for that's pretty much it for that but uh yeah i guess so now let's do rate those deaths and i guess pokel's really the one we want to talk about yeah so pokel's death one to ten um i'm gonna give it like a an 8.5 in the anime because i felt like it was technically it was off screen but i think the real horror came from everything pre his death i would say he was technically dead by the time they lobotomized him like that is as dead as you can be until your heart stops he's kind of in a get out scenario right exactly like in a the whole real horror came from that and i think in the manga i would give it a nine because it's being chopped up like at that point death is probably better than being like lobotomized (laughs) but just barely (laughs) Mm -hmm. episode title idea uh pokal in the sunken place (laughs) oh no oh sad i think haven't you had like at least two or three titles with pokal already (laughs) i think i have one with ponzu ponzu a lot man these two these two side characters keep exploiting them for clicks and <laughs> <laughs> um poor pokel i would definitely i'm in a similar vein i would rate pokel's death definitely like an eight 
ish nine. Um, and I agree with the fact that he was pretty much dead by the time, I think by the time he got caught, because there was no way. And so, yeah, just, it hurts because, you know, you like, you, there's this like a sliver of hope, maybe he'll live. And then he's like, nope, he's, he's dead. And then you just realize, wow, now that he's dead in the nest of the chimera ants, you know, whatever they're going to do to him is going to benefit them immensely, which means the world is extra fucked. So it's just, yeah, I think it's like implications of what happened with his death that makes it even worse and more, I guess, like impactful for the series overall as well. So, yeah. Yeah, the place it has in like the sequence of events where it's like, oh, because of this, the Camarants have gained so much knowledge and like mm -hmm. also the sadness of it because Poco was always kind of like the you shouldn't have passed like the Hunter exam. Um, and so like, it was just like, oh, it'd be, you have hopes for the guy because you're like, oh, maybe this guy will like, you know, get to the level he needed to be the whole time. And like, he does make, you know, obvious leaps and bounds. Like he ends up developing his Hatsu stuff like that, but he's still not up to the task of surviving this arc. So it's sad because like, you know, it's a guy that you saw struggle and you thought was going to make it. It's like watching a baby bird fly out of the nest and they start, like they start gliding and flapping their wings for a bit and then fall to their death. Oh yeah. That's a... That's a really good comparison. <laughs> yeah, so I'd say 8-9. Like, the 8-9 split, pretty unanimous. Like, the manga versus anime, uh, where I think the manga makes it just more brutal and, like, more mm -hmm. explicit. But I think that it is a really good, like, story-impacting death of someone who, like, you rooted for even if you didn't love him. You, like, rooted for him getting better. So, like, yeah, it's pretty sad. Yeah, definitely. <sighs> but with that, you guys, do you guys have any more thoughts on the episode before we kind of take a break? Um, you technically not a lot happens, but at the same time, it was like a very tense, like nail biting episode. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, I think it's like, I think every episode gets more stressful than the last one. So <laughs> peak stress and it's only going to get higher, <laughs> but it was really good. And I think it also did a good job, um, I guess really getting into the mindset of the Chimera Ants and not that I'm rooting for them because I'm not with like at all with them like oh we can gain none ability but it is very fascinating how they're kind of like learn because we kind of you know, we watch Golden and Kilua with Wing learn about Ned and they're kind of basically doing the same thing except like twice as fast and it's twice as scary. So it is kind of fine it's a, it is kind of funny how kind of full circle it is especially like as like we've been watching and as viewers so so just to swing just to do a full circle uh, i mentioned the nativity scene thing i think i overstated that um uh, i have pulled it up it is manga volume 28 um it is less a nativity scene and more a scene from the bible of non-specific origin but I feel it is implied to be a nativity scene. Like, but I will say that it is implied rather than is because you do not see the actual child. You merely see the triumvirate of people looking over someone. Also, there's yeah. definitely influences from um, what is that one painting? Is it in the Sistine Chapel where like a uh, human is touching the hand of God? Yeah, um, with where Adam. Both looking yeah, where they're both looking jacked as hell. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, it's like Adam and. <laughs> God, I I forgot the title of the painting, but yeah, I know what you mean. So yeah, but you see the influence here. Mm-hmm, for sure. Literally finger to finger, 
It's a fucking gold spark in the middle. <laughs> yeah, you, honestly, it really is. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, I just want to get a ceiling fresco of uh, of this. It'll be good. The ultimate anime merch. <laughs> but yeah, with that in mind, uh, let's go and... Uh, right now, we're going to do a little research topic actually brought up by uh, patron Lucas Moore. Um, so he actually asked this a long time ago. I'm only getting to it now. I'm sorry about that, but I'm going to try to do uh, patron resource uh, research requests more often. Long story short, we have a couple different tiers on our Patreon. I forget which t tier it is that uh, you know earns you a uh, requested research, but uh, check it out. And um, you know I'll try to get to those in a, a much more timely fashion than I have. But this was a fun one and something I've kind of been wanting to research anyways. So let me just detail their question first. Uh, quote unquote, I wonder if there is anything to research about Nen and all of the different subcategories of Nen being related to different sorts of martial arts or ideologies around the world and where those ideas originated from and slash or Togashi's inspiration for the different types of Nen. So uh, basically, I looked into this and Togashi hasn't spelled it out directly, but I will say that it is safe to assume that uh, it is one influenced by previous popular media that Togashi likes, such as, you know, other anime and um, martial arts film and stuff like that. But also uh, the underpinnings, uh, the philosophical underpinnings that kind of like guided those things. So the influences I'm about to talk about are both direct and indirect depending on the source for some of them i'll tell you how confident i am about them for others i'm definitely going to tell you their guesses but i think i have a pretty good lead on a lot of it so without further ado uh i'm gonna start with a discussion of chi uh so to understand the root of nan we're going to discuss a number of traditional east asian disciplines with roots in chi so we must first understand chi to understand the milieu in which these ideas develop directly or more often very indirectly from so uh, just to start things out, uh, Sarah and Hannah, like, what do you guys know about Chi? Slash, have you guys ever seen that video on Jackie Chan Adventures at the end of an episode where someone asked Jackie what Chi was? Yeah, I <laughs> watched that. I remember it. that. <laughs> oh, okay. Recall it quickly because I remember many things about that show, but probably not that. <laughs> It's an absolutely insane video. It's pretty much someone asking Jackie what she is and then him just giving a really weird answer, kind of talking about it being like everything and then making animal noises. And I'm like, <laughs> yo, whoever edited this together definitely tried to make it less coherent than more coherent. Cause I, I mean, so Jack is, Jackie can speak English, but not super well, but I have a feeling that it wasn't his fault. I feel they fucked with it. Like it oh, looks yeah. like a YouTube poop. Cause he's just like, caw, caw. and I'm like, what, why would you do this? <laughs> Oh boy. Um, but yeah, like what what do you guys know about Chi? Like don't worry if it's like not much. Just like go ahead and name anything that comes to your mind. I think one of the takeaways I usually get from it, it's kind of like that almost in a lot of different types of philosophies and religions, essentially like life force, like life energy. Mm -hmm. And there's like specific ways that it can be harnessed and through like let's say traditional Chinese medicine or um, like stuff like Tai Chi, more like exercises, there's ways to balance it. Um, yeah, I, I'm I mean, trying to think of what we think from like uh, Avatar, learning from that is like the similar concept of like Chakra and Arito and... <laughs> you want to know something funny? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Chakra and Naruto, what if I told you, and you know the Chakra gates in Naruto? Yeah. Yeah. What if I told you that in traditional Indian medicine, those gates were actually what were called Chakra? 
Oh, oh yeah. I, I that's what I was thinking. Like you know, when Aang in season three, he has the you know go to the guru <laughs> to unlock all the levels of his like chakra gates. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And the the name of the energy is actually prana. So like oh. they're more accurately chakra prana. <laughs> Interesting. Or prana chakra. I forget which way it is. But yeah. yeah. So that's kind of like my understanding of it for the most part. Very simplistic. Um, yeah. I I know even less. I mean, I understand the life force, the concept of it being a life force and it, it being tied to elements to, of the earth as like a maybe to help differentiate parts of your chi. And then obviously like. It being used in a lot of both like in good and both probably not good martial arts shows and movies and like in general like Mulan. Mulan, <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, like it made her a girl boss. So <laughs> it's like Oh uh, yeah, it's girl boss energy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, girl boss energy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. We're gonna talk a lot about, you know, girl boss chi today. <laughs> oh god um, yeah you know this is the gatekeep chakra this is the anyways <laughs> the gaslight chakra oh my god Boy. yes gaslight chakra this is perfect <laughs> uh but i was gonna say it's interesting because a lot of the things that uh you two have described are actually more accurate of the japanese conception of chi which is called ki but this is something we'll get into Long story short, a lot of the depiction of chi in the West is influenced a lot more by uh, Japanese culture than it is by Chinese culture. And this has led to some slight confusion, but it's like kind of in a literal sense, chi is immaterial, but we'll get into it. Okay. That's interesting. Oh, I was just starting. Are you going to talk about why that may be? Like why it's more influenced by the Japanese take versus the Chinese take of chi of key versus chi yeah i think i have some theories as to why that is but part of it's the same reason that we call go go in the states even though the chinese original name is wei chi it's just like hey the ideas were popularized by japanese cultural exchange post-world war ii ah okay Mm -hmm. okay yeah it's basically the reason so like when you have like a concept that exists in both chinese and japanese culture the u.s tends to know the japanese version better Mm. Hmm. interesting Oh yeah, no worries. Uh, we'll we'll talk more about it. And we can theorize some about this too, because like the differences are not terribly like important, but like the subtleties of differences explain part of the way it's interpreted in like not only anime but also like uh, this one in particular. But uh, chi is a word that originally means air or vapor. Before it was popularized as air or vapor, though, it had a much more ancient and archaic meaning, which was the atmosphere of giving a gift. Uh, and in this case, the part of it that was the gift in the ancient character was the character for rice. So it was a gift of rice. So, you know, chi is just really the aura of giving rice. Nice. <laughs> yeah. As as most things, if you go far enough back in Asian culture, it's like this is somehow tied to rice farming somehow. <laughs> it's like half our, half our weapons, our organization of labor, like things like that. Came from um, rice. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Came from rice, the the spirit hunter story. So currently, uh, so real quick, a history of the word. So in old Chinese, it was pronounced on like hoods. And then in middle Chinese, it was he. And like, I'm saying that weird because like the character that I'm given is a combination KH. 
and I always forget how to pronounce that properly. But in modern Chinese, this is pronounced chi in Mandarin, hei in Cantonese, and qi in, I think, Hokkien and a couple other uh, Chinese varieties. Um, so currently, th- uh, th- currently thought of in Chinese traditional medicine and philosophy as the vital force of people and the universe, but more broadly, its definition as lifted uh, in the dictionary is uh, one, air slash gas. And this is uh, exemplified in the modern Cantonese word for uh, soda, which is hei soy. Soy means water in Cantonese, which is equivalent to the uh, shui in uh, Mandarin. And so hei soy literally just means air water or vapor water so that's like literally soda uh this is as opposed to in mandarin where the word the modern word is uh which sudashui which means like literally soda water like just a transcription of the english word soda Mm. Uh, the second definition is smell the third definition is spirit vigor or morale and here's the fourth one that is very important in the West, but not as important in regular Chinese speech, which is vital slash material energy in Chinese metaphysics. Uh, and so the fifth one is tone, atmosphere, or attitude, which that's also another way of using it. And um, if I remember correctly, the word for polite in Cantonese includes the word uh, hey in it. If I remember, I forget it off the top of my head. Um, the word for anger also uh, is related to hey. Uh, oh, uh, you have you guys heard the expression yeet hei? Mm-mm. So that's like a Cantonese, well, it's a Chinese traditional medicine generally, but uh, that's a mm-hmm. Cantonese phrasing of it, which is the idea of hot air. And it's the idea of like having too much hot element in the things you're eating. And it's seen as like a bad oh, thing. So sense. if you hear, yeah, Cantonese friends talk about yeet hei, that's what they're talking about. Uh, also, anyone who's a member of Subtle Asian Traits has probably seen posts about yeet hei. Uh, yeah yeah uh, okay. okay that makes sense i mean it's like not probably influenced by but you know in like western culture it's like someone's you're full of hot air so reviving that relates to being angry i think that is possibly related but in a very very far back way that we'll talk about later but basically the mm-hmm. hot air thing i think think comes from like the humor theory of like medieval like west which came from like the humor theory of ancient greece which probably Mm -hmm. has shared uh origins with like the elemental theories of like ancient india which also influenced buddhist elemental theories which influenced chinese elemental theories but yeah you get the idea wow it's all connected (laughs) yeah the circle of life but yes um So, uh, the understanding of its workings has varied across East Asian philosophical schools and time. And so, this is a quote from the Wikipedia. uh, Until China came into contact with Western scientific and philosophical ideas, the Chinese had not categorized all things in terms of matter and energy. Qi and Li, Li being pattern, were fundamental categories similar to matter and energy. So, this is kind of a deceiving phrasing because Qi is both matter and energy, while Li is the idea of organizing principles. So, like, Li is basically, like, hey, the methods of transacting between different states of qi. Um, and so the earliest recorded philosophical description of qi was in the Analects of Confucius, where it literally means breath, and when combined with shui, the character for blood, shui qi, blood and breath, was a descriptor of a person's motivational characteristics, which is, again, similar to the Western idea of the four humors. Hmm. Uh, the philosopher uh, Mose, uh, founder of Moism, used the word qi to refer to noxious vapors that would eventually arise from a corpse were it not buried at a sufficient depth. 
This is actually almost identical to the Western, the ancient Western idea of miasma, um, which is for anyone who's really into ancient Western mysticism should look that up. Uh, but this, he associated maintaining one's chi with adequate nutrition and thought the chi that was uh, thought the chi that was the clouds was useful in divining portents of fortune. So basically, chi in Chinese thought has not only been human vital energy, but the universe's vital energy. Mm. And oh, whenever I think nutrition, I think about the Khmer Ant Queen. So this all is tying in together. <laughs> <laughs> so nutritious. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh another philosopher uh Zhuangzi, uh an early taoist sage thought of again i'm very bad at pronouncing chinese so please direct all your comments towards me and not the rest of the podcast uh thought of chi as not only a human or living phenomena and indicated that the wind is the chi of the earth and the cosmic yin and yang are the greatest of chi so uh you guys have seen full metal alchemist brotherhood right mm-hmm when uh, May talks about uh, seeing like the like basically the energy of the earth, she's actually talking about the flow of chi through the earth. Oh, okay, that makes. And sense. the idea was that like Western alchemy, like that of uh, a mistress, has basically perverged it and uh, basically subverted it into tectonic energy, which is like a purposeful misrepresentation. So a fourth person, uh, Mencius, a fourth generation disciple of Confucius, described a kind of chi that might be characterized as an individual's vital energies. This chi was necessary to activity and it could be controlled by a well-integrated willpower. I'm going to, spoilers, this is the guy who kind of develops the chi that we're kind of more used to now as a Chinese traditional medicine thing. When properly nurtured, this chi was said to be capable of extending beyond the human body to reach throughout the universe, like emission or something. Uh, it could also be augmented by means of careful exercise of one's moral capacities. So Confucianism is obsessed with the idea of like morality, but in a way that like, hey, if you extol and do the Confucian values, you'll have like material benefits such as like increased lifespan and becoming like a holy person, which means more than just being good. It, it means like you could become like a sage and immortal and stuff like that. Well, not immortal. It would just like make you healthier. Mm. Um, the people who were into immortality were more the Taoists uh, who totally were into eating mercury um, <laughs> as a way of getting immortal ironically that, yeah that was a legit a thing a lot of people did back in the day western alchemists did it too um, I think people were just really obsessed with, uh, with uh, mercury because of its ability to go into the human body and then if you took the excretions of said human and boiled them you'd still have the same amount of mercury like the idea of being able to like incorporate into a system without being dissolved by it was like a thing that a lot of people thought would lead to immortality which you know in retrospect doesn't make any sense but like at the time the idea was like you would yeah. gain this ability to be immiscible with the world mm. oh yeah trippy <laughs> yeah the ancient world was weird sorry what were you about to say oh no I, I was just gonna say it's like kind of like a lot of either it's interesting like the logic that they use because at the time it probably made sense they just didn't have the information that we have today to realize that mercury was doing the opposite from what they intended um because it just makes you think of like ancient makeup styles and how most of the time they use stuff to either make themselves look younger but ironically the stuff they were putting in them were 
either damaging their bodies and slowly killing them. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very ironic. Yeah. I wonder if they were able to tell that mercury smelters had decreased lifespans. Cause like, so um, there's a sort of like, there's a story, a side story to the wizard of Earthsea where they like talk about an, a mm -hmm. uh, early wizard who's like obsessed with mercury in this process, but like all his smelters die, you know, at young ages. And so I'm wondering if like people in the ancient world actually saw this, basically the smelters would die. And then I wonder if they just misattributed it to the smelting process rather than mercury being the problem. Probably. I feel like that has happened a lot in like instances where certain substances that were commonly used for either like for various purposes, they just thought it was the it was like how these things were being used or processed and not the actual materials themselves that were killing people. Mm. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. I yeah. wonder if you could see similar things with like early nuclear experiments, but that's like a topic for another time. Um, but anyways, uh, now to talk about Qi, uh, aka the transmission of Qi to Japan, uh, which is important to understand its modern depiction. Qi is much more commonly referred to than Qi and takes on, in, in Japanese than Qi is in Chinese and takes on social as well as a literal and philosophical aspects. Recent dictionaries, for example, list over 600 common Japanese terms and expressions employing the ideogram for Qi compared to about 80 in Chinese. And this is par partially uh, the fault of like Qi being also the literal translation for energy, like of the Western variety in Japan, but like it can also be like basically key is like a super overloaded term in Japanese while in Chinese it has like, while it is overloaded, it's not nearly as overloaded. Um, and so in discussions of this, uh, there's, so this is something that kind of confirmed to me that I was on the right path in discussions of this, the related phenomenon of E AKA intention is related to Qi in a way that might sound familiar. There's an old saying that E leads to key, which in turn leads to Qi. So basically Qi in Japanese is blood. So intention leads to energy which in turn leads to blood the idea of like hey materializing things like through your own actions aka blood but also the idea of if you focus energy on a point you're gonna get like a feeling of heat on it which you know that's probably just more you over focusing on it mentally but like that was kind of like what people used to observe um i have a note here that says sound familiar does that ring any bells to you guys it doesn't hmm. but Maybe it's just... I'll give you a hint. Zushi. Oh, oh Zushi. Right. The phrase he said was, learn ten, no zetsu, through ren to attain hatsu. And like the structure is pretty similar, especially when he explains the meaning. Ten, focus the mind, reflect upon the self and determine the goal. Zetsu, put it into words. Ren, intensify your will. And hatsu, put it into action. Oh. So this is the Nen of the Flame, a.k.a. the fake Nen that they teach Gon and Kilua first before they, like, they find out more. But it is yeah. basically the exact same principle of like E leads to Ki, which in turn leads to Chi. So that was like the beyond the obvious like, hey, Nen is just a form of Ki. This was like an, another thing where I'm like, I'm definitely on the right direction. Thank God. Uh, otherwise, all this research is useless. Uh, but... Key is regarded as a psychic energy related to the body and like radio waves between people. Ideally, key can be viewed as A, that which is perceived in relationships between a subject and the world around them, B, that which is perceived in relationship between people, and C, that which is perceived as identical with the subject's own thoughts, feelings, or mood. And these definitions are in contrast to Chinese qi. Like, the Japanese con conception of qi also includes 
like the Chinese one, but these are the things that Japan basically put on top of it, that there's like an interrelational social aspect that has to do with like your character and your feelings, which also explains in Yu Hakusho when like people are able to feel Yusuke's emotion through his chi. It's a, so the Japanese, it's like more tied to like the blood itself, like the blood running through your body. I understand that correctly. That's a hum of, that's a homophone problem where, so in Japanese, chi is key, but chi in Japanese is is blood so yeah so basically key is chi <laughs> fuck you get the idea because i was thinking like i wonder if that all ties into like you know in like east asian culture specifically like the importance of your blood type and like this talking how the key is related to your like your own mood and your own relationship to the world and how that's like a you can in that those cultures like knowing what your blood type is or a person's blood type is like a understanding of their character and who they are as a person so i don't know if it was all related i could be going on a tangent i don't think that's related so much as i think i mentioned uh the podcast mobile suit breakdown does an episode where they research the origin of uh the blood type thing and it turns out it's like weird race science that japan used to explain why like the native <laughs> aboriginal taiwanese fought them so hard during colonization um, and okay. so, like, that actually has, like, a really <laughs> fucked up history unrelated to mysticism. It's related more to bad science, like, racist science. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not, like, saying, quote-unquote, science is bad. I'm saying the science that they were doing specifically to justify racism was bad. <laughs> um, anyways... Uh, now to talk about the different Nen types, uh, I'm going to start with like one that I think is relatively obvious and apparent, but enhancement. So this probably has its origins in uh, Qigong, aka a system of body postures, movement, breathing, and meditation used for the purpose of health. This is a uh, Chinese school that like gained traction in Japan uh, back in the day in a history that I'll kind of try to skim through. But while Qigong has its origins uh, into the BCs, the modern form was actually made in the 40s and 50s when the Chinese government tried to integrate disparate and unrelated schools of Qigong in an effort to systematize them and look into an alternative philosophical underpinning for science and medicine. And uh, you see things like this happen in revolutionary societies all the time. Like, for instance, like people forget that like a lot of like modern scientific thought was actually made during the French revolution when pe people were trying to break away from ancient uh, philosophical and scientific thoughts. So like the metric system is a result of the French revolution wanting to throw out traditional measurements. Um, but people don't talk about the parts of the French revolution scientific impact that were thrown away because they're like, this is too much. Um, did you guys know that they divided days into Senta days and Mila days back like during the French Revolution and then gave it up because they're like, this is dumb? Oh my god. So and so let's say for exa example, today it's like around 3:30. Instead of just being one day, it'd be like this is like the second day or the third day. No, 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 oh, no, no. Okay. More like they divided the day into hundred pieces and they were like, Yeah, these are Senta uh -huh. days. Oh, that's <laughs> terrible. Yeah. Yeah. They realized they realized how dumb it was because it doesn't divide super well and like it doesn't really fit in with the other aspects of uh the metric system. Like basically the rest of it was like sound enough where they're like, yeah, we can actually have time be an arbitrary constant. Mm. And by arbitrary I mean like the length of, you know, the circulation of the of the earth around the sun, which is not arbitrary, but it's arbitrary compared to like the base 10 numeral system of the rest of the metric system. Right. Um anyways, 
while uh, Qigong was restricted during the Cultural Revolution, in the post-Cultural Revolution years, it experienced a renaissance where it formed cult-slash-folk religions throughout the countryside, including Falun Dafa, a.k.a. Falun Gong. And this increase in civic society like basically was able to challenge the government's power and combined with people joining a literal cult that opposed aspects of scientific medicine, the government was pretty pissed off about this. And so uh, they like repressed Falun Gong and like other uh, Qigong related uh, religions. But by this point it had already caught on in Japan and the West. And um, so like a lot of people when talking about like Falun Dafa and like Falun Gong, like are just like, Oh yeah, I support them because like they were banned by China. But it's just like, ooh, there's like better people who were repressed by China to maybe support because if you look into the history of Falun Gong, it's actually it's a literal cult. It's it's really weird. We're probably gonna get super canceled by Falun Go- Falun <laughs> Dafa now, but um, yeah, they they also believe in segregated heaven. Like they believe oh. in like literally, you go to different heavens depending on what race you are. Oh boy! All right. Oh no! Yeah, <laughs> yeah no. And so, like, they mm, do not deserve no. the punishment they got at all because, like, yes, like some of them were tortured and stuff like that. That is terrible. But maybe there are other ways to protest the tyranny of a government than supporting like a cult. Yeah, yeah. I think there are more effective ways. <laughs> for yes. Sure. Anyways, uh, there are five traditional major traditions of qigong. With purposes like, in traditional Chinese medicine, for the preventative and curative functions of the body, in Confucianism, to promote longevity and improve moral character, and in Taoism and Buddhism, as a part of a meditative practice, in Chinese martial arts, to enhance self-defending abilities, and uh, yeah, contemporary Qigong uh, blends diverse and sometimes disparate traditions, in particular the Taoist meditative practice of internal alchemy, Nadan, uh, the ancient meditative practices of circulating qi, Xing qi, and uh, standing meditation, Zhan uh, Zhuang, and the slow gymnastic breathing exercises of guiding and pulling, Daoyin. Uh, so from here, Hokuto no Ken took the idea of internal martial arts, Qigong, and external martial arts, and combined them into something like enhancement, which was further developed in Dragon Ball, where Ki was compressed into the body to power up, and boom, you get basically enhancement. This one was the most straightforward. It's very obvious that like Japanese Qigong practitioners influenced like, you know, Fist of the North Star, in addition to the guy who made it watching a lot of, like, Hong Kong martial arts movies. And so you see precedent in Togashi's other work in the form of Yusuke and Toguro, who are both... Yusuke does a lot of things, but Toguro is a straight-up enhancer, but Yusuke is also kind of an enhancer. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Especially um, down the line with um, season three, with, like, the chapter black, and then definitely with, at the very end, I guess, like... When you like the the Mazaku's like ultimate enhancer, I guess. When, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Where his like, <laughs> the point the point where his powers like just like vastly simplify and stuff like that. But yeah, we'll get into it. Yeah. Anyways, this next one I'm pretty confident about too. The first one, like I'm like this is just how it happened. Like there's no debate. This one I'm pretty confident about. But anyways, transmutation. So this one's a bit of a long story. But first, we got to talk about how elemental theories came into Japanese tradition. So we're going to start with a Chinese theory called Wuxing, translated uh, variously as five phases, five movements, or less accurately, five elements. It's a five-fold conceptual schema to explain the cosmic cycles, internal organ chemistry, politics, and medicinal drugs. The five phases are fire, huo, water, shui, wood, mu, metal or gold, jin, and earth or soil, tu. 
uh, again, my tones are bad. This order of presentation is known as the days of the week sequence. This is because Chinese days used to be organized this way and Japanese ones still are actually like, so Japanese calendars still have this cycle on them, even though China stopped using it. Um, so this was transmitted into Japan as uh, Gogyo, which I'll talk about in a sec, but like um, I'll, you guys can look this up or it's Wuxing uh, W-U-X-I-N-G. And you'll find like a diagram that looks like a pentagram combined with like something else. Uh, have you guys ever seen this before? I actually, yes. I I cannot recall where. I'm sure I was watching a show or something. I saw something like this because it's not Naruto. Unless, I know Naruto has like the... Oh, we're getting there. Naruto okay. has a very related chart that I that is like a direct descendant of this. I feel like I did see it from there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because like the elements like, um, especially like wood and metal... So, it, I don't know what I watched. It maybe, uh, oh, it's I think um, not the Last Kingdom. No, shoot, Sarah was that one. Um, Twelve Kingdoms. Twelve Kingdoms. It's it, Twelve Kingdoms is a um, not shoujo, josai manga series, or it's a fantasy novel where a Japanese girl ends up basically um to uh, this ancient Chinese inspired world and she becomes basically she has to survive it and there's all these kingdoms battling each other and they're all different elements maybe I think based off of this similarly so there's a lot of like politics that's taken from like I guess inspired by ancient China and like all that kind of stuff so maybe I saw it there I don't know but it it is kind of familiar mm-hmm. yeah so uh this came into Japan as Go- Gogyo, which is a literal translation of Wuxing. But from this, Japanese Buddhism generated something called Godai, which literally means the five greats. A, uh, a Japanese Buddhist five-element philosophical system that differs in its elements uh, form from Wuxing slash Gogyo. So instead of, uh, instead of the sequence of fire, water, wood, uh, metal, earth, it is earth, water, fire, wind, and void. Uh, Naruto has this exact one, but replacing void with, uh, replacing void with lightning. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Godai and Gorin are also seen within the practices of ninjutsu, where these principles became an essential aspect of the esoteric ninja teachings, the Ninpo Mikyo. Uh, Ninpo is now a common way to describe ninja magic and consequently Naruto's jutsu system descends from this. Nara takes this very directly while Hunter Hunter follows on from Yu Hakusho with the idea of being able to change the nature of one's key in a manner similar mm. to this, but not as explicitly direct. So examples would be people like Hiei and Genkai because like Hiei can, you know, like literally transmute like key into fire and Genkai can like sort of change the nature of key. And she does this with like the, the, um, the uh, spirit wave when she's like, you know, trying to test like the heart of someone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so those are the two I'm very confident about. This one I'm... I'd say this one I'm very confident about, too. But uh, did you guys have any questions about that one before I went on? No. Okay, cool, cool. So now we have Emission. Uh, This one has a very straightforward path from Chinese uh, wuxia novels, which means like martial chivalry novels, to movies, to anime, starting with the novel The Thousand Buddha Palm, a.k.a. The Tathagata Palm. Tathagata was a Buddha? Is a Buddha? I forget. Let me look this up. Tathagata. 
Oh, it's an honorific title of a Buddha. So let's just go with just Buddha Palm. The Tathagata Palm comics were edited by Huan Yulong, and it's adapted from the Hong Kong Tathagata Palm series of martial arts movies. And the movie itself is adapted from the novel Thousand Buddha Hands, serialized in Ming Pao by Shangguan Hong, and the work Tianfo Palm by Taiwanese novelist Lu Sanyang. I always forget how to say C at the beginning of that, but. The Buddha Palm is a Kung Fu, uh, in Kung Fu Hustle is in reference to the manual and the main character learns it from, uh, that the main character learns it from is actually the opening of one of the old HK Buddha Palm movies. And so the reason oh, in cool. Kung Fu Hustle, yeah, so in Kung Fu Hustle, it's given to him as a joke because the idea being that this style doesn't really exist. You know, yeah. it's just like, yeah. it's just like mystical, but then he actually unlocks it because the idea is like, he's the chosen one and he's able to like take, you know, this thing that's purely spiritual and turn it into something more direct. But anyways, the idea of chi shooting out of Buddha's palm is basically what happens in it. Like people are just like putting their palm out and shooting chi beams. And to my knowledge, this is like the earliest chi beams like that were like turned into energy and like used for offensive purposes. This becomes a prominent thing in Hunter Hunter in a way that I will not explain. Uh, so how did this get to Hunter Hunter? The sequence is probably like Buddha's palm, the book, Buddha's palm, the comic, Buddha's palm, the movie to Fist of the North Star because both Rao and Toki, the older brothers of the main character, shoot key out of their hands to Dr. Slump to Yu Yu Hakusho. Wow. Oh, to, to Dragon Ball to Yu Yu Hakusho. I have Kuwabara as the president here. That's that's not accurate. Uh, Kuwabara is not really an emitter. I was saying that mostly based on his spirit sword. I guess like, I guess this is, um, Yusuke also does this. So bad president. Yeah, because yeah, Yusuke, when you think of like the quintessential spirit bomb, or like spirit gun is like literally emitting energy and i guess like in this way like he's emitting um what are, well, sorry what it was called um but yeah i i guess kuwabara kind of kind with of the sword yeah and i guess he also does make the sword like whip out like very far sometimes but like yeah it depends on where he is in the series <laughs> yeah spirits are go long i don't know exactly whatever that was <laughs> yeah so this next one is the one I'm least confident in, so feel free to question me as much as you like. Conjuration, uh, origins in the Western conception of conjuration and the Japanese kotodama. Uh, I'm going to be honest, I think this is the most weakly connected of these. Uh, conjuration, to evoke or to call forth while... Con uh, to evoke is to call forth, while conjurare in Latin means to, to swear together. So the idea of conjuring back in the day really meant that you like made a deal with a demon who would show up. So conjuration can thus traditionally be seen as making bonds with summoned spirits in Western mystery tradition, but also in shamanic cultures. The related but different Japanese tradition of kotodama, literally meaning the soul of words. So koto meaning speech or words. Oh my God, I just realized that koto from Yu Hakusho is probably called that because she's an announcer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God damn it. And tama, which means uh, spirit or soul. The Japanese believe that mystical powers dwell in words and names. The notion of kotodama presupposes that sounds can magically affect objects and that ritual word usage can influence or environmentally body mind, uh, can influence the environment, body, mind, and soul. So actually, you know what connection I didn't think about? Rando is a fucking kotodama practitioner. Mm-hmm. For sure. Which fits in with the next note because he's how old he is. Kotodama is a central concept in Japanese mythology and Shinto. So it's also fundamental to Japanese martial arts, for instance, the use of ki, you know, that noise people make the ha, like all that stuff. The mm -hmm. term is a combination of ki, you know, the word for energy that we've been talking about this whole time, 
and mood ao the emphatic form so basically it's like energy like energy mood emphasis so mental imagery techniques are used to teach the martial artist to imagine starting a kiai in hara or dantian dantian is the chinese word for the sea of chi that uncle iroh talks about in avatar where like basically they're able to like redirect the lightning so like they took that from like martial arts as well oh that's cool kind of thinking about it because you know because the whole concept of lightning and like when initially when you really think about it how if and even in the kind of like the i guess like the science or just like the i guess the power systems is avat with avatar their world it kind of doesn't make sense at least from a scientific perspective how can someone channel and like lightning but given like the contents of like what Iroh said with it being tied to kind of like your with this philosophy it makes a little more sense because it's not like it's just not like physically the lightning just going through your veins to the other side it goes a little bit deeper than that so I think it's effectively a form of transmutation where basically they take the chi of the light they take the lightning in form it into chi and then shoot it back out as lightning on the other side that makes a lot more sense versus like the lightning just goes in you and then it passes through to the other side. Yeah, without frying your heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so so while while I did research on those, I think more likely. So I re-looked at the word for uh, conjuration and it's uh, the Japanese word is gugen, which uh, and conjuration, conjuration is gugenka, which literally means translate or to embody. So it's more realistic that this is just about making tools or objects exist, which is like, I don't have as good of an explanation for. And like, well, I think Kotodama is related. I don't think it's as direct as I'm like saying it is. So this one's more like up in the air. And if a listener has a better explanation, please write in or just, you know, tell us in some manner. But anyways, a precedent for this is Karasu, who, you know, like makes bombs out of nothing. And Rando with the, uh, you know, chanting. Yeah, I can see that because every other... Like in Yohaku Show, every other demon or powerful being, usually if they're channeling like their demon or spirit spiritual energy, it's through an actual physical item for it to then, you know, expel yeah. that energy. So I think those are the two closest for sure. So the next one, I have two kind of shaky explanations for and then one very good explanation but i'm going to list all of them because this is a very varied category and it's manipulation so this is probably from multiple sources including hacking freaking which was a basically pre-computer hacking of telecom tech like payphones voodoo and acupuncture Mm. i'm going to start with the ones that i think are least likely uh so basically the ones that i think are least well not least like not least likely but least specific because, like, hacking and freaking, like, yeah, that's that's what Shalnark does. He's a freak. Uh, but the voodoo thing, um, I'll talk a little bit about this, but voodoo dolls, turns out they aren't prominent in either Haitian voodoo or Louisiana voodoo, which is the two main types of voodoo. But this doesn't mean that it's not possible it's an influence. Uh, so it turns out, like, that's mostly just a Western depiction thing, which is probably how Togashi would have heard about it anyway. So just because it's not real doesn't mean that it wouldn't have influenced him. But I was wondering where the association between the practice and the two religions uh, came from in the mainstream where like, you know, like why would you invent this? And it turns out in John Houston Craig's 1933 book, Black Baghdad, the Arabian Nights adventure of a Marine captain in Haiti, he described a Haitian prisoner sticking pins into an effigy to induce illness. 
it then was used in a bunch of different movies, including Victor Halpern's uh, 1932 White Zombie and Jack Torn- uh, Torner's 1943 I Walked with a Zombie. And so basically movies popularized it when it was like a very fringe practice in both forms of voodoo. Oh, interesting. So finally, the one of these that I think I actually has like good historical theoretical basis besides like Shalnark, but uh, acupuncture, which uh, have you, have you guys, uh, do you guys know much about acupuncture slash have you had acupuncture done on you? I haven't had it done on me, but I know it like what the functionality of it. And I know a lot of people who do it. Like, or, well, used to do it on a rig before the pandemic, so I should consider it for myself. Yeah, I feel like I had it, I forgot where. I could be also mixing it up with, like, the allergy tests that I got, where it felt similar, where they were just sticking, like, pins in my back. (laughs) But I But I actually I don't think I had an acupuncture, but I imagine that's the same physical sensation that acupuncture has. <laughs> Maybe. Have you, Joe? Oh, uh, yeah. So my dad's a former acupuncturist, in addition to being a Western-style doctor. Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, long story short, if you guys are interested in acupuncture, I would really do some research into it because basically most research has shown that it is not a placebo but it's not that effective for things other than pain pretty much pain is the only thing that it's like really shown to be effective for and it's effective for certain types of pain and that the traditional theoretical systems for understanding how it worked are mostly wrong and that they've discovered that the way that it works probably a lot simpler and doesn't require the same sort of training that people thought it did oh wow yeah, it turns out mostly just stabbing people t- like very superficially generates a nice analgesic effect generally. Oh, so kind of like the cancellation of pain through another source of pain? <laughs> exactly, but it's like a minimal pain, yeah. so it's like tricking you into yeah. thinking you're in more pain than you are, but like you don't feel it. It's just like yeah, sort yeah. of numbing. Um, and like, keep in mind, again... I'm literally related to an acupuncture, a former acupuncturist. Um, and like, you know, you, you might find someone who knows more than this, but like, yeah, most of the research has shown like it is not a placebo, but it's only like a decent like analgesic effect. And that's about it. But anyways, traditionally, though, acupuncture is one of the oldest forms of traditional Chinese medicine dating back to at least 100 BC, likely 600 BC and possibly 2000 BC. I'm putting my bets on 600 BC. I'm going to summarize my reading with 600 BC is the most likely one. Um, So early texts focus not only on spiritual energy, chi, to balance yin and yang, but also on using acupuncture for bloodletting. So like ancient acupuncture was also about bloodletting. No modern acupuncture is about that. Don't worry. Modern acupuncture is like with like way finer needles and like does not do that at all. Uh, while no one theoretical framework was ever agreed upon, the idea of the manipulation slash redirection of qi meridians was commonly held across acupuncture schools. In traditional Chinese medicine, disease is generally perceived as a disharmony or imbalance in energies such as yin, yang, qi, shui, zongfu, uh, and the zongfu meridians, and the interaction between the body and the environment. In 1279, acupuncture began to lose popularity in China to the point that in 1757, it was considered a dead art there, surviving instead in Vietnam, Korea, Japan, and the overseas Chinese diaspora, along with amongst like Jesuit missionaries who had come to Asia and were like, yo, we got to bring the shit back to the back to Europe. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. In China, the popularity of acupuncture rebounded massively in 1949 when Mao Zedong took power and sought to unite Chinese uh, China behind traditional cultural values. It was also during this time that many Eastern medical practices were consolidated under the name traditional Chinese medicine. Qi is no longer considered the explanatory framework in China, while it is now, while in the West, a lot of people still believe in Qi. While in like China, like mm. unless you're going to like a village practitioner, if you're going to like a large like place where they do acupuncture, they're like, yeah, yeah, it, Qi is not the thing. Yeah, and so that's like very clearly like an Illumi influence. But uh, other manipulators include people like Kurama, who can like inject his Qi into you know plants and cause them to do any number of things. But um, yeah, do you guys have any questions about? uh manipulators before we got oh i by the way i didn't even look into specialists because specialists can be like whatever the fuck that's it's like a culmination of like all of them along with something different as well so um yeah i think manipulation i don't know if i have any questions i think i'm trying to think of if there's another like potential yohaka show character that can just does something similar but i think I guess the territory people could also be considered combination mm-hmm. manipulators and conjurers. Yeah, especially like let's say for example, like Sniper, um, who you know he injected his like he, spiritual energy. I forgot what they were called. It, again. It's called Reiki. In, Reiki into yeah. like objects and then stuff like that. So yeah. Oh yeah! Earlier we were talking about like why the. Japanese understanding of chi is so popular in the West. And one of the things has to do with like, hey, Japanese cultural interchange post-World War II. But another thing is like Reiki healing is a popular thing in the West, mm-hmm. which is a Japanese That's cultural true. practice uh, combined with like Japanese martial arts gaining traction in the U.S. before Chinese martial arts. Mm-hmm. So that's two parts of the reason. Uh, that combined with just like people being really interested in Japan in the 80s and people, again, Key is a much broader concept in Japan than it is in China. And so right. it was just used in a lot of idiomatic phrases too. So probably discussions of like energy and like of the energy of people, especially with the perverse kind of racist sociological angle. Like people were looking at Japan in the eighties from probably like led to discussions of like the Japanese idea of key. But uh, I guess like how convincing was that to you guys? Because I, I honestly think some of those are like relatively like, Hey, I'm pretty sure this is actually the influence. And then some of them I'm like, yeah, this is my best guess. Um, I think the acupuncture one is, I think, pretty good. The voodoo one, uh, with the connection to voodoo, is a stretch. <laughs> but I can, I think if there was m- more detail about, like, at least, I, I did not know voodoo was basically conceived by, like, I'm assuming a white novelist. So no, 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 no. Vo- voodoo was not like voodoo is. is oh very no, much voodoo, like an... voodoo dolls. I mean, I clarify. I don't know if it was conceived or just like he found like one person doing it. It was like everyone does mm-hmm. this. Oh boy, right. yeah, right, yeah. No, I think that the most of your connections make sense to me. Um, I mean, you're pretty good about like this may not be completely accurate or not, but I feel like this way with a lot of like authors, it's just hard to, unless they explicitly say what they're inspired by, they likely don't even know what they're inspired by themselves Bingo. and either things that they're either exposed to or grew up around, like they probably subconsciously included these inspirations into their own like world building and character development. Um, so I feel like it's pretty fair game to say that these 
everything you just explained could really tie into like the choices that Togashi made when he was building up like the nun system and developing that. Yeah. 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 I think he primarily made men, Nen, primarily made men, primarily made Nen <laughs> as like a solution to a logistical problem of like, hey, how do I incorporate things into a systemic way to talk about them strategically? And so I right. think his focus was primarily based on like rules and logistics. But I do think that I don't think the inspirations were like, I will make this based on this. I think it's more like, hey, this is my cultural context and I'm going to fill in the blanks mm -hmm. with things from my cultural context indirectly is like how I yeah. went about looking into this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, honestly, really like it is super creative and um, I appreciate the research because it goes a lot more in depth. And, you know, I know with a lot of power systems and stuff, you kind of have the art, you separate into the categories based on like, you know, general skills and strengths. So this gives a lot more like context and not only like, I guess, like Tagashi's like like cultural influences but just in general just like you know it is a different way to look at it versus like oh yeah there's always going to be some people that just like to punch shit and there's always going to be people that like to manipulate things you know so which is I guess a very base way someone would think about like I guess men or just like power different abilities and all that kind of stuff so yeah, and I think we've talked about just, like, the structure of, like, the Nen uh, hexagon before. I do think it's interesting that specialization, like, I get why it exists for, like, logistical reasons. I do think it's interesting that it is between two categories that, like, don't share much in terms of, like, how much, like, proficiency you have in them. Like, the idea being, like, hey, you're going to have very little proficiency in one if you're, like, on the other or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or, like, it just kind of, like... Not very little, but, like, it just doesn't, like, go around the whole way. And so I think it's interesting that the idea of, like, hey, every once in a while, someone who can do conjuration and manipulation will be, like, something crazy, like a specialist, is pretty interesting. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of it for my research. Um, do you guys have any comments uh, on anything in the episode? Otherwise, uh, if you could take us out, let's go. Yeah, yeah, I can take us out. Um, Sarah, do you have any questions? I'm good. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for listening to the Spirit Hunters. Please hit us up with questions, requests, or just chat um, with us at our Facebook or Twitter at Spirit Hunter Pod. Heads up, check us out on patreon.com slash Spirit Hunter Pod and join our patron-only Discord where we'll be discussing the shit out of Hunter, UU, and much more. Speaking of Discord, if you want in but you don't have the funds, you can help us out by giving us a written review on Apple Podcasts, send us a link, your Discord username, enough evidence to connect um, them both, and we got you. Each review gets a service to tens or hundreds more people. Finally, today's intro and outro themes were done by 50Beat and Lightus Dalian, respectively. Check them out on youtube um also a big shout out to our editor tommy thanks to him the rest of the crew can focus on doing research and talking about tagashi see you on the other side Bye.
Hey, I, I just want to extend that shout out to uh, Tommy. Uh, long story short, last week we had a really weird episode where I definitely kept on being like, "I'm sorry, Tommy. I'm sorry," because like we kept on like making weird things that he'd have to edit. Uh, joke was on me because it was Tommy's birthday that weekend, <laughs> so I ended up having to edit. And I was just like, "Holy shit! I appreciate this man so much now," because like I was just like, "Oh my god, he he definitely makes the show a big part of what it is." So, uh, yeah. major shouts out to that guy. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tommy, for being awesome and being an yes, amazing thank editor. thank you, Tommy. <laughs> see y'all later. Bye. Hey, see you guys. <laughs>